gracious God, thank you for this wonderful group of people who have met so faithfully Sunday afternoons to study Paul's letter to the Romans. We thank you for what we've learned, for the conversations we've had, for the things we've wrestled with, and we pray that this time when all is said and done will have borne fruit in our lives. And all this we ask in Jesus' name, giving thanks for this fellowship and for this final study. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to dive in to Romans 16. Now, um, just to kind of frame what I'm about to read, um, this is our last time to meet. And this is really a, a wrap up chapter of sorts where uh, the book comes to an end. And so I certainly want us to talk about Romans 16, but I also want us to kind of have a wrap-up conversation and uh, to think about what Romans has meant to us and and just to know that um, we don't have to spend our full hour uh, just talking about this chapter. And um, what you're about to find out is Paul is about to greet 26 people by name. Um, I don't know how to pronounce half their names. And so whenever you just see me making up a pronunciation, please don't call me out on it. Uh, but it, it has raised some questions, which is, was this an original part of Paul's letter to the Romans, right? How did Paul know so many people in a church that he had never visited before? Was he really that connected? Uh, because some have suggested that, no, this was originally a fragment of a different letter that was sent with Phoebe to a different church. Now, there's not a lot of uh, reason to think that that's true that, that I'm aware of. Uh, and so I read this as being the legitimate end to Paul's letter to the Romans, but just wanted to kind of throw that asterisk in this final chapter. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centrique, so that you may welcome her and the Lord at his fit, as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who's worked very hard among you, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relative Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Typhnea and Typhosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who's worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. Greet Asnicritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I urge you, brothers and sisters, keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and offenses in opposition to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. 
For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Now to God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Uh, just a few notes. So Paul is sending this letter on with Phoebe. Uh, and the reason Paul says Phoebe is uh, his sister is not because they are biologically related, but because Paul envisions the church as a family uh, where we are brothers and sisters. Uh, Phoebe is said to be uh, both a deacon and a benefactor. Uh, and this is the only woman in scripture who's actually given both of those titles. We know that Phoebe played a very important role and was a leader in the church. Um, now, some of you who might have had a bias about Paul, that he really wasn't too keen on women being leaders, I just don't think the evidence is there uh, when one considers the full corpus of his writings. In fact, um, the household codes that we find in Ephesians and Colossians, perhaps letters that were written in Paul's name meant to address a different situation, uh, were written after Romans and, and after Galatians, where Paul will say things like, in Christ, there is no male or female. And so not only is Phoebe held up as a leader, but we have this wonderful woman in verse 7, Junia. Uh, Junia is said to be not only an apostle, but prominent among the apostles. And this title of apostle is the highest honor of leadership that one can be given in Paul's world. And so just to kind of point that out, we have like this woman named Junia, who we don't really know much about, but she was this prominent mover, shaker, apostle in the early church who was in Christ before he was, who was... Um, believing and following Jesus long before Paul was. So just want to name that uh, about Paul and kind of to, to show you how that shows up here in Romans 16. He also mentions Prisca and Aquila, and we know that these were very prominent people in the early church, uh, a married couple uh, who we find out about in Acts 18. Um, they were in Rome, but they left when Claudius kicked all the Jews out and uh, presumably, they're now back in Rome, uh, and, and Paul first met them in Corinth, according to Acts of the Apostles, but whenever he says, greet also the church in their house, we can imagine uh, how Paul had developed a relationship with Prisca and Aquila and his other missionary journeys, and now had a relationship with them again now that they were back in Rome. Um, I'm not going to kind of go through all these names because we don't know who they were. I think there's something very beautiful about that, right? These 26 names represent all the unnamed saints that we'll never hear about this side of eternity who, in Paul's eyes, are worth mentioning. 
right? So whenever you think about who you know at St. Michael's or leaders in the church today, it's very interesting to kind of go back and to say, well, 2,000 years ago, uh, there were leaders, and, and Paul knew these leaders, and Paul had relationships, and so Paul does a fair amount of name dropping here. Uh, my favorite is verse 13, where we have this character named Rufus. Now, we don't know who this Rufus was, but we're told in Mark's gospel, chapter 15, verse 21, that Simon of Cyrene, who was compelled to carry Jesus's cross, happened to have a son named Rufus. Now, is it the same Rufus? We don't know. But Mark goes out of his way to mention the name of Simon of Cyrene's son, simply because they were probably known leaders in the church at the time the gospel of Mark was written. So was this the son of the man compelled to carry Jesus's cross? We can only use our imagination, but I don't think it's that far-fetched. So after Paul greets all these people and says, all the churches of Christ greet you, he urges those in Rome to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions. Um, this is something that Paul often does in his letters, because we remember last week that Paul reminded the church at Rome that with one voice, they were to glorify God. And he said that on the heels of saying things like, let each be convinced in his or her own mind. You know, some people eat vegetables, some people eat anything. Being on the same page, Paul said, on those small trivial matters uh, is not that big of a deal. You can still glorify God with one voice. But here, I think Paul has in mind larger issues that cause dissensions. Now, we can only speculate on what those are, you know, what constitutes something that we can disagree on versus something that we cannot disagree on. But Paul basically says, you know, there's troublemakers in every community. Keep an eye on those uh, and make sure that your leaders are not serving their own appetites. That is a very haunting and beautiful verse. Uh, verse 18, for such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And I think we can all, you know, picture Christian leaders who are a little shady or who have succumbed to scandal or who are obsessed with their own power. And here, um, I know as a rector and a priest, I'm reminded that the point of Christian leadership is not to serve my own appetites. It's not to get my way. It's not to make me feel special and powerful. It's not to be well thought of, uh, but rather it is to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever we read that verse, we can ask the larger question that Romans asks, what is our life in service to? Is our life in service to our Lord? or is our life in service to our own appetites? And when you get a bunch of people in the same room all serving their own appetites, the end game is dissension, which is what Paul has pointed out in verse 17. So here, Paul is really just reminding them that the secret to unity, the secret to glorifying God with one voice, which is what he talked about last week, is actually serving the Lord. Verse 19, he reminds them that their obedience is known to all, that he is rejoicing over them. In verse 20, this is a great Advent verse, 
the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. Remember, for Paul, the victory is already secured, but not yet realized. Um, there still is evil, sin, and death lurking in the world that disciples need to know about. And here Paul is reminding them that the ultimate victory belongs to God. Uh, one of my favorite verses in Romans is verse 22, uh, where we find out that Paul is not actually the one with quill and parchment in hand writing this. He is dictating this letter. He says, I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Who knows whether or not Paul actually gave Tertius uh, permission to write this, but here is the actual person dictating Romans kind of sneaking his head in saying, hi, it's me, Tertius, and, and I'm saying hi to you as well. And then in verse 25, Paul basically ends with a benediction. He reminds them that the mystery kept secret for long ages is now being disclosed and that they are participating in that mystery. And he has this great phrase that he uses to end the letter in verse 26. He calls it the obedience of faith. And the reason I love that verse is because it brings together two things that we often feel like we need to choose one against the other. But Paul says, no, they go together. One is what we call works, obeying God's commands, following Jesus's teachings, obedience. But then there's faith, belief, trust, giving God our heart as a living sacrifice, right? There's the outer and the inner, obedience, faith. And Paul just basically says, these are not two things. So we're going to bring them together and I'm going to call it the obedience of faith. And if we go back to the very beginning of his gospel, that thesis statement, Paul says, Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also equally to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. And so Paul brackets this letter. He starts with this thesis. The gospel is for everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. In it, the covenant justice, the righteousness of God has been revealed so that all might live a life of faith. He quotes the prophet Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. How does he end the letter? By talking about the obedience of faith. And at the end of the day, all this talk about law, Gentile, Jew, baptism, sin, you know, where does the rubber meet the road? Paul wants you to know the obedience of faith. I mean, I really think it's that simple. He wants the obedience of faith to be the main story that guides your life. And thus, that is how he ends his epistle to the Romans.